So we're gonna do something today that we've never done before on an Easter. And uh, so welcome to Elevate City, you're all guinea pigs. We are, uh, on a typical Easter Sunday, what we do is we preach a very targeted message on the resurrection of Jesus. And we just sell out to the entire day being solely focused on the resurrection of Jesus. But this Easter, we thought, what if we did something different? What if on this Easter Sunday, we decided to start a brand new sermon series? What if we started a brand new sermon series that was gonna last for several weeks, actually several months, but we started it on Easter and we told you how epic it was gonna be and how awesome it was gonna be. Could we get enough hooks in you to make it intriguing enough where some of you who, you know, we haven't seen since Christmas Eve might come back next week? <laughs> That's funny, y'all. I don't care who you are. That is funny, okay? So turn to your neighbor and say, Merry Christmas. And turn to your other name and say, Happy Easter. I hope y'all got what you wanted on Christmas morning. All right, let me hear you say resilient. resilient. Now, some of y'all are like, I hope I'm resilient to deal with this guy's jokes, okay? But uh, resilient is the title for the sermon series that we are going to be starting tonight. And it is going to continue far past Easter. And so I hope that you'll stay tuned for this series called Resilient. And throughout this series, what we're gonna be doing is we're gonna be studying the, the books of First and Second Peter. We're gonna be looking through this, this book that is unbelievably epic. And what we'll see is that this book of First and Second Peter are designed to help equip you follow Jesus in a world that's falling apart. So a great question. How do we follow Jesus in a world that's falling apart? How do you navigate the landmines of an ever-shifting cultural landscape? How do you deal with politics and pandemics, with persecution and economic collapse? What do you do with global conflict and wars in an age of secularization and consumerism and yet another sexual revolution? How do you go through all of that and not lose your soul? How do you find a spouse and raise a family and earn a living and stay walking with Jesus through it all? How do you follow Jesus in a world that's falling apart? How many of you like going to the movies still by show of hands? Like you're a movie goer, you'll go and check out a flick in the cinema. Um, I love two things about the movies, okay? I love two things about the movies. Number one is movie theater popcorn, which is manna from heaven, hallelujah. Anybody with me? And mine's like, make it extra buttery, extra salty, make it like the Dead Sea in a bucket, okay? That's what I'm into. And, um, and the second thing that I love about movies is the trailers. Anybody just love movie theater trailers? Okay, like I'm the kind of person that if you're not gonna be able to see the trailers, then why even go to the movies, okay? Like half the point of going to the movies is watching the trailers, okay? And so this is what I wanna do very quickly is I want to give you the James Cameron level movie theater trailer for this series that we're getting ready to start called Resilient, okay? I want to like blow your mind for what you're getting ready to experience over these next several weeks in hopes that you'll come back next Sunday. That sound good? All right, so here we go. Once upon a time in a land. No, I'm just, I'm not gonna do that far. I'm not gonna do that far. All right, so first and second Peter, the author of first and second Peter is? Peter, good, all right? If we couldn't get that figured out, we were gonna be in trouble, all right? So uh, the author is Peter, and Peter is the kind of person who knows a thing or two about living in a world that's falling apart. Peter was a fisherman turned disciple, turned traitor, turned apostle, turned underground pastor, turned martyr who was executed for his faith in the first century. And Peter takes his life, takes his experience, and he writes to these churches in the first century. His audience are exiles throughout the dispersion, elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, if that doesn't sound like people from Hunger Games, I don't know what does. He writes to elect exiles of the dispersion. And these people are located, they're scattered, they're spread throughout the Roman Empire. We have a map to show you where these people are. They're all throughout the Roman Empire in Galatia and Cappadocia and all of these different regions. And actually the list reads as a route that a covert courier would go on to take this letter to these different Christians who are hiding out in underground churches in fear for their lives. Peter writes to them and this, um, 
this letter has a great deal of debate about exactly when it was written. Theologians and historians will go back and forth, but most agree that it was written somewhere between 62 AD and 67 AD, roughly 30 years after the man Jesus of Nazareth experienced his public execution via crucifixion. Roughly 30 years after the man Jesus of Nazareth then got up out of that grave three days later, resurrected from the grave, and caused this new fledgling movement to burst onto the global scene. 30 years later, Peter writes. Now, what I'm getting ready to tell you is is the topic of great debate in theological circles because we don't know exactly when the letter was written. But this is what we know is that sometime before this or sometime just after this, some extremely significant events happened. So what you're getting ready to hear is either the historical air that these Christians are breathing or that they are getting ready to breathe. Peter is writing from Babylon. Let me hear you say Babylon. Now Babylon is actually a, it's a cryptic code for Rome. Let me hear you say Rome. Babylon is the great oppressive enemy of the Old Testament. Rome is the great oppressive enemy of the New Testament. Babylon is the superpower of the Old Testament. Rome is the superpower of the New Testament. And Peter is saying that he's writing from Babylon, but he's using it as cryptic code to say that he is actually in Rome. Now, why is he doing this? Peter is hiding out undercover in Rome, but calls it Babylon. And the reason that he does that is because if this letter gets hijacked by Roman persecutors, then they will come and try to find Peter, the leader of the church. They will pull him out from underground, execute him publicly, and squash this movement into the ground. So this is like James, this is like Jason Bourne level Christianity, people. Like covert mission. Um, the Roman historian Tacitus says that at this time, Romans view Christians as enemies of society and as hating the human race. Now, why? Why is there so much hostility towards Christians? Why is there so much hostility towards Peter? Well, it's due in part because of the Christian rejection of all forms of paganism and polytheism. It's due in part because of the Christians' devotion to the one true God and their allegiance to Jesus Christ as king. You see, that statement caused this massive disruption to Roman way of life that celebrated idolatry and that uh, experienced cult-like emperor worship and that experienced insane levels of sexual promiscuity. And so that was this shock to their system. But there was something else. Something else happened. On July 19th, AD 64, Rome starts burning. No, not Jim Rome, the sports commentator. Okay, no one likes him. Literally, Rome gets set on fire. The fire began in the merchant area of the city in the Circus Maximus, but it quickly spread throughout the imperial city. According to Tacitus, the fire burned for six days and seven nights. Hundreds of people died and thousands of people were left homeless. Now, this is where the story gets unbelievably interesting. Most Romans believe that their emperor, Nero, actually started the fires. You see, Nero had this insatiable desire to build and to build and to build. But in order to build more, he had to tear down what was already there. And so many Romans believe that Nero wanted to build a great city for himself. And so he set the city that was on fire. And, and, and from the ashes of that fire arose Rome as we know it today, the city that's full of marble and coliseums and promenades and arcades. But, but that all rose from the ashes. And so there are people, Roman citizens, in the ashes. They're homeless and they're hopeless. And so Roman resentment is real and it is hostile and it is aimed at Nero. And so Nero begins to panic. Nero begins to think, and Nero begins to come up with this plan, devise this plan, and, and say to himself, I need a scapegoat. Nero's scapegoat of choice, Christians. Nero tells this myth that Christians are the ones who started the Roman fires. This begins to create intense levels of persecution for Christians all throughout the Roman Empire. Tacitus explains this persecution 
And he tells us that Nero's had his victims arrested, tortured, executed. He fed Christians to lions during spectacles in the remaining part of the city amphitheater. And he ordered them to be thrown to dogs, crucified, or burned to serve as city lights. So if you're looking at like our graphic for the series and you're wondering, bro, that looks a little intense for Easter. Now you know why. So Peter is writing to these young churches from a covert place underground. He is writing these letters to Christians living as outcast minorities, as spies facing social ostracism, societal pressure, and real life persecution in a world that is literally burning down around them. And if that doesn't make you wanna come back for week two, you need to check your pulse, okay? You need to see if you're still alive. So turn to your neighbor and say, just keep coming back. In these letters, Peter's going to teach us how to have resilient marriages and be resilient parents, how to be resilient under societal pressure, how to be resilient under oppressive authority, how to be resilient in unexpected suffering, how to be resilient in a post-Christian society that has lost his mind, how to be resilient in a world, as some would say, has gone to hell in a handbasket. Anybody excited for this series? One of Peter's goals um, as verse two states, is for grace and peace to be multiplied. First Peter chapter one, verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, if you got one of those nice fancy Bibles, we're gonna dirty it up real quick because this is what we do here at Elevate City. I want for you to circle that word multiplied. Circle it, highlight it, underline it, take a picture of it, make it your screenshot, write the date next to it, multiplied. I just want for you to circle it because that's Peter's goal and that's my goal. I want to 10X grace and peace in your life tonight. I wanna see your understanding of the gospel 10X. I wanna see it multiplied. I wanna see your understanding of what peace is multiplied. I wanna see your resiliency as a person 10X. I wanna see your resilience as a disciple of Jesus multiplied. And I want for you to circle that, highlight it because we're in April right now, but just a couple of other hooks in the water. We're gonna come back to that word multiplied in August and you're gonna see that we're gonna spend the next four months laying a foundation of grace and peace in your life, a deep understanding of the gospel and what it means to be a resilient disciple of Jesus so that we can see multiplication happen. And you don't even really know what that means right now, but you're going to understand it when we come back to this in August. So you better not just come back this week or next week. You better come back the week after that and the week after that. And you better cancel your vacations this summer because you're going to be here as we prepare for grace and peace to be multiplied in your life. Amen? Amen. Now, I know a lot of you have got to be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Easter? I'm so glad you asked. Can I hear you say living hope tonight? Now say it like you mean it. Say living hope. If you want to be a resilient, devoted, committed, unwavering, still standing when the city is burning kind of Christian, you have to understand the living hope that you've been given in Jesus. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Say living hope. You know, the world conditions you to not get your hopes up. Have you noticed that? People will tell you that the greatest indicator of your future is your past. That what can go wrong will go wrong. People say things like hope for the best, but expect. You know, researchers have found that over the last two decades, hopelessness, a feeling, a sentiment of hopelessness has doubled in the lives of teenagers. Simultaneously, what has skyrocketed during that time is rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. You know, it's interesting. We start all of these programs in schools because we think that what teenagers have is that they have a drug problem or that what teenagers have is they have a bullying problem or that what teenagers have is they have a technology problem. But I wonder tonight if what teenagers have is a hope problem. I wonder if the reason that they have lost their way and that they're losing their lives and that they're losing their souls is because they've lost hope. And, and I want for you to know tonight that I'm not talking about wishful thinking, okay? 
I'm not talking about just like happy-go-lucky. I'm not just talking about a general sense of optimism or chance. I'm not telling you to be positive or look on the bright side. Like the hope that I'm talking about tonight is not a lucky charm. The hope that I'm talking about tonight is not just crossing your fingers. The hope that I'm talking about tonight is not pixie dust. The hope that I'm talking about tonight is real, substantive. Take it to a bank, guarantee it, write it down. Not as much as a hope so, as a no so kind of hope. You see, my hope tonight is to get your hopes up. I want to get your hopes up tonight. I want to try to awake something on your insides where you begin to hope for things that you've never dreamed of hoping for before, where hope starts to build in you. Real, tangible, substantive, emotive, overwhelming, compelling, directing hope, real hope. I want to get your hopes up tonight. You know, it's okay to get your hopes up when you know how certain what your hopes are in. You see, Hope for Christians is not a principle. Hope for Christians is a person. Hope for Christians is not a something. Hope for Christians is a someone. And that someone did something that changed everything. Hope got up out of the grave. Hope beat death. Hope changed history. In one miraculous breath, the story that was over said, nah, we just getting started. Hope changes everything. It's time to get your hopes up tonight. Hope in Jesus defies reality. Hope in Jesus overcomes certainty. Hope in Jesus rewrites the story. Hope has a name and hope's name is Jesus. You see, following Jesus' execution by crucifixion, all hope was lost. You have to know this, okay? You have to realize that Christians weren't walking with swagger on Friday. Following Jesus' execution, all hope was lost. Hope died. The disciples, they ran for the hills. They locked themselves in rooms. Jesus was a fraud. Jesus was a fake. The last three years of their life had been utterly purposeless. All of the investment of their time and energy and resources and career and money and allegiance, it went bankrupt on Friday. The cross took everything from them. This is so evidenced in the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Look at, look at Luke 24. Luke 24 uh, verse 13, this is what it says. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, we'll drive seven miles real quick, okay, because we got cars. When's the last time you walked seven miles? They are running away from the city. Most people, when they teach this passage, they act like these disciples were just going on a mid-afternoon stroll. Nobody strolls for seven miles, they are running away. Do you know why? They executed him. They're probably gonna execute us too. Hope is lost. The story is over. These guys are on the move. And as they were, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Hopelessness paralyzed them. Hopelessness moved their emotions to a point of like sadness. They're, they're, they're literally frozen in hopelessness by this question. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are, are you the only visitor in all of Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? They said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped, did you catch it? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. All of their expectation, all of their anticipation about who Jesus was and what Jesus would do got thrown out the window at the cross. And they thought Jesus would establish the kingdom and free them from Roman tyranny and restore Israel to its rightful place of prominence. But on Friday, those hopes were lost. And on Saturday, it was the dark night of the soul. But then on Sunday... 
And then on Sunday, something happened that changed everything. Jesus exited the grave, leaving an empty tomb, and an empty tomb filled his disciples with a living hope. They got filled with a living hope. What turned the world upside down? What caused some ordinary fishermen, uneducated, untrained, unpicked, passed over, just some rogue sect of Judaism that nobody was interested in? How did these nobodies turn the world upside down? How did they make it so that 2.4 billion people around the world today are doing exactly what they're doing? We're doing pledging their allegiance to King Jesus. How did it happen? It happened because of hope. It happened because these people caught a vision of hope. How did they live as outcasts, as exiles, as strangers, as foreigners, as aliens in a world that was burning to the ground? How did they do it? How did they not throw in the towel when they started executing their friends? Why didn't they stop preaching when they started stoning Stephen? When laws were made that outlaws, outlawed Christianity, what caused them to go to prison joyfully and continue to sing? How? When, as church tradition has it, Peter's wife, I don't know if you know this or not, Peter's wife was about to be executed in front of him. He looked her in her eyes and he said, remember the Lord Jesus. This is Peter, people. Peter the pebble. Peter who denied Jesus to a teenage girl. Looks at his wife as she's headed to the gallows says, remember the Lord Jesus. Why? Hope. He knows that what happened to the Lord Jesus is gonna happen to her. That though he died, he lives. Though, so though she dies, she will live. He knows that just like the Lord Jesus said, that when I die, I don't die as a corpse going into the ground. I die as a seed going into the ground. And I'm coming back better than before. I'm coming back with the fullness of life. It happens because they were born again to a living hope. Hope revolutionized Peter's life. The, rev, the, the resurrection revolutionizes Peter's life. And I believe today that a proper understanding, a healthy understanding of the resurrection and the hope that it produces will revolutionize your life too. You know, being born again is a weird concept. How many of you like grew up in church and you're a born again Christian? You heard that phrase before? It's kind of like weird. It's kind of got this, you know, cultural Southern attachment to it of just being Born again, it's just been hijacked by hellfire and brimstone preachers. But it's really a beautiful reality. It's this idea that because Jesus died and rose again, that now I get to be born again and I get to see the world anew. That because Jesus rose and he brought this living hope for me, I am a new creation. I'm not the same. I'm born again and I don't see the world like I used to see the world. Like, this is the revolutionary hope that produced in these disciples a courage to stand in the present because of what happened in the past and because of what's promised in the future. Like this is a working understanding of hope. This is what hope does. If you're wondering today, Joey, why does this matter? Why is this important? Why are you telling me this? Because for you, the resurrection might just feel like some like distant relic in religious past. Might feel like, oh, we're just showing up here today and everyone's wearing pastel colors and searching for eggs and you know this is fun but I'm just gonna kind of go on with my life no please don't today I want for you to know today that like hope is something that like changes how you live it changes how you stand in the present because of what has surely happened in the past and because of what is currently guaranteed in the future you see for too many people hope is like ethereal hope is abstract hope is like an idea or a wish or something way out there but for the disciples it was something that was like right here a present reality that they were standing in and they were standing in this present reality of being able to go to the gallows, to be able to be fed to lions, to go joyfully to their cross, to stand in prison and sing. They were able to stand in the middle of that because they, they knew surely and certainly what had happened in the past. And what had happened in the past is that Jesus actually got up out of the grave. They actually saw, physically saw this man, the holes in his hand and the the hole in his side, they saw him die and then they saw him alive. And they're like, okay, if it happened for him, it could happen for me. And if he said that he was going to do that and he did that, then maybe everything else he said is true too. 
And maybe what he said, not just about the past, but about the future is going to be true. And what he said about the future is that I've got an inheritance that is coming. Did you catch it? First Peter chapter 1, verse 4. You've been born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So hope, hope looks first back towards the cross, the fact that Jesus died the worst, worst death that anybody could die, but then he actually got up out of the grave. And hope also looks forward towards the future, that Jesus said he was going to do that and did that, and he's promised a future with an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And so because I know that I've got this thing in the future, it allows me to stand firm in the present because he's been faithful in the past to do what he said he was going to do. And so I believe he's gonna be faithful in the future to do what he said he's gonna do. So let me stand in a hopeful expectation in the present, no matter the circumstances that I face. I think we've got two problems. Some of us, we struggle with this event that happened in the past, and we just haven't figured that out yet. We haven't come to terms with it, and, like, we still need to do some apologetic study, and we've got to get some questions answered, and I would love to do that. Shoot me an email. Let's go to coffee. But I think a lot of us, what we've got is we've got a problem with this part over here in the future of what it is that we're actually hoping for. Like, we, we act like heaven, like we're going to get there, and it's just going to be like a Hallmark card. It's going to be like cloud or, or like a diaper commercial. We're going to be naked on clouds with harps, right? That's like our best guess at what heaven's going to be. So it's like, why would I really stand and endure and deal with persecution and keep walking with Jesus and make a commitment to live for this when that's what I'm hoping for? But if you, if you catch that, that's not what he says you're hoping for. He says that you're hoping for something that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And it's an inheritance. It's a reward. It's billions and billions and billions. It's worth billions and billions and billions of dollars. More than you could begin to imagine. And it is, it is secure. It is secure. Like, it's kept in heaven for you. Have you, have you ever worried that something wasn't going to be kept for you? Like, maybe you book a hotel reservation and you're running late and you're like, oh, I don't know. Are they going to hold my hotel reservation? Or, you know, maybe you get dinner reservations and it's, like, really crowded and you're walking up and you're like, man, did they give my reservation away? And I'm so nervous. You know, that's the difference between Kayla and I. Like, Kayla, she'll, like, I, I, I hope that they held our reservation. And I walk up and I'm like, I, I, I wish they wouldn't hold our reservation. <laughs> I wish they would give our reservation away to someone else. Let them see a side of Joey McLaughlin they don't want to see, right? The scriptures say that Jesus, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has purchased an inheritance for you that is imperishable, that is undefiled, and that is unfading. The writers of the Bible would say that in the coming ages that God is going to display the immeasurable riches of his grace, meaning that there is like rich, richness, wealth, glory, uh, honor, blessing um, that is going to be poured out on the saints in heaven that our minds can't even conceive. It can't be measured. It doesn't run out. Like we've got this in our, in our minds that when we get to heaven, what we're ultimately hoping for, that it's just gonna be this like static place of perfection, right? We're just gonna get there and it's gonna be like, ah! And it's like that forever, right? And you get there and it's just as good as it gets. But that's actually not what heaven's like at all. It's immeasurable. So it's like you get there and it's the best day ever. And then the next day you wake up and it's even better. And then the day after that, it's better than the day before. And then the day after that, he shows you a little bit more of his glory and then a little bit more of his glory and a little bit more of his glory. And he starts to open back up the pages of history and he shows you the way that all of the elements of your story weave together to create this beautiful tapestry of you understanding who he is and you stepping into your calling to fulfill the purposes in the earth right now here today. And you understand that it was worth every sacrifice that you made and everything that you laid down and everything that you gave up and every sin that you say no to and every time that you prayed and every every song that you sang and every fast that you fasted and every dollar that you give, it was worth all of it to stand in hope because of what's to come. You gotta get that in your minds tonight that we are remembering that he rose, literally rose from the grave. And so we are trusting in someone who keeps their word. And we are hoping that we are going to rise to newness of life too. And that it's going to be exceedingly, immeasurably, abundantly more than we could ever ask or imagine. That it's gonna be this otherworldly kind of hope. You, you see, Jesus, um, he roots our hope in a past reality, in an event, 
in a historical event, not in a set of doctrines, not in a moral philosophy and event. Jesus of Nazareth was a real man, verified by history, secular and Christian. He had disciples, he performed miracles, he claimed to be a king of an invisible kingdom. He said he was going to die. He talked about it a lot. He talked about it a lot, like all the time. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. He's just trying to like, no, you're not gonna die. You can't die, you're gonna, no, I'm going to die. Like, just come with me on this, guys. I'm teaching you, we're, but I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Nobody believes him. They just can't wrap their minds around it. He gives them these crazy pictures. Like in John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. John chapter 12, verse 32, When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So he didn't just say that he was going to die. He said how he was going to die. And he said when he was going to die and where he was going to die. And, and then guess what? That's how he died. And that's where he died. And that's when he died. And that would just be amazing. Like if I could just tell you, I'm going to die on this day. And then I die on that day, you'd be like, that dude was something. But now what? Because he's gone. <laughs> but Jesus didn't just say that he was going to die. He said, John 2, 19, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. You see, God in history, the reason that we hope in God. The reason that we have a living hope in God is because God in history promised a Messiah that would come and he came. And because God through prophets predicted where he'd be born and that's where he was born. And because he did not only predict where he would be born, but he predicted how he would die. He called his shot. He pointed to the fence and he hit it right there. But not only that, we hope in God because he predicted that he would get up out of that grave and he did it. He rose again. This is the kind of hope that starts revolutions. This is the kind of hope that changes the world. This is the kind of hope that people start to live with that causes them to become everyday revolutionaries in a world that is burning to the ground. This is the kind of hope when, when you get your eyes on these two events, this past event of the cross and the resurrection and on this future event of eternity in heaven and this sureness of this inheritance that the Father is going to give us. This is what causes us to stand in the midst of suffering. This is what causes us to keep going when the world starts to doubt us. This is what allows us to become minorities and exiles and outcasts and weirdos and strangers in a post-Christian culture. It's hope. Hope starts revolutions. Hope changes the world. You know, I've heard people say before that um, sometimes Christians can be so heavenly minded that they become no earthly good. You ever heard this before? I've never met any of those people. I've never met any person who was so obsessed with heaven that they don't do anything here on earth. It's actually those who think about what is coming in the end when this veil gets pulled back from our eyes and we realize that this is more of a fantasy land and that that's actual reality. Those are the people who actually change the world. Those are the people who actually pour their life out for others and for what matters most. People with a heavenly, hope-filled perspective. Heavenly focus leads to worldly impact. Heavenly focus leads to resilient discipleship. Heavenly focus keeps you walking, keeps you worshiping, keeps you running your race, fighting your fight, and keeping your faith. Because the heavenly focus says you can take my job, and you can take my career, and you can take my talent, and you can take my money, and you can take my ability to pray in schools, and you can take my understanding of sexuality, and you can take all of that from me, but you cannot touch my hope. My hope stands when everything else gives way. You can take my energy, you can take my rights, you can take my influence, you can take my ability to walk, but you can't touch my hope. This book is brimming with hope. If you just read through this book, it is overflowing with hope. Some 170 times this book talks about hope. Reference hope is a book of hope. And I want for you to be a person of hope tonight. I want for you to understand the hope that Jesus came to bring. But you have to understand that this hope that he comes to, to bring doesn't mean that we don't hurt sometimes here in the present. So just because we have this living hope, it does not mean that we are eliminated from hurting. Remember, this is how to follow Jesus in a world that is falling apart. First Peter chapter one, verse six would say it like this. He says, in this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just because we have a living hope, it doesn't mean that we don't hurt. Let me ask you this. Who would be bold enough to say right now, maybe you're going through something. And maybe it's not, you've been grieved for a little while by various trials, but you've been grieved for a long time. And you're just, you're in the valley of the shadow of death. And you would say, you know what, like I've been wanting a kid and that kid hasn't come yet. Or I've been wanting to be married and I haven't gotten married yet, or I've been wanting healing from this sickness and it hasn't come, or I've been trying to get out from under this weight of financial burden and I just can't get that snowball to start snowballing, or I've been trying to break through the clouds of this depression and I just can't, and I'm just right now, presently today, you'd be bold enough to just say, Joey, I've kind of lost hope today. Would you, would you raise your hand if that's you in the room? It's okay, you're not alone. Yeah, amen, I love, amen, 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 I love that. You can put your hand down for just a second. I wanna do this, I wanna do this for, for you who just raised your hand. If, if you're a person who's been in a situation like that before, you found your, it, it was sometime in the past, you had lost hope, you had just gotten so deep, so dark, so in over your head that you were like, I'm never gonna get out, but somehow you hung on to the Lord and he pulled you out and you're standing on the other side of that story tonight. If that's you, if you've ever been that, through that before, you lost hope but then found it again, will you raise your hand? Look at those hands all over the room. We are people who have a living hope. And we are in a community that is a demonstration of the fact that God has been faithful in the past and so he'll be faithful in the future. This living hope that we have means that Christians know that difficulty is not my destiny, that pain is not the end, and that I have a hope that transcends my trial. This living hope ultimately knows that what Jesus will do is Jesus will bring meaning to our suffering because Jesus took the worst day in human history and he made it the best day in human history. So if that's what Jesus can do with the cross, what can Jesus do with your trial? Living hope knows that suffering is a temporary reality, but that our salvation is an eternal reality. It's a permanent reality. A number of years ago, there was an experiment that was done and a group of scientists, they got rodents, they got rats, lab mice, and they put one group into a bucket of water and they left them in there to drown. And the experiment was conducted to test the hopelessness of species, of how they respond in hopeless situations. And so this group of rats, they swam around in the water and on average, they lasted 36 minutes before all of them drowned. And then they had this other group of rats that they put into the water initially and they let them start to swim. And right before they were about to drown, right before they got to that 36 minute mark, they pulled the rats out of the water. They saved the rats, they rescued the rats. And then the next day they came back and they put those same group of rats back in the water and they let them swim. That same group of rats the next day went 36 hours before they drowned. Do you know why? It's not because they had a little rest. It's because they had the power of hope. They were hopeful that salvation had come in the past and that salvation would come in the future. And that's how we stand as followers of Jesus. That's what we've been given as followers of Jesus. That is our superpower as followers of Jesus that I know that he beat the grave. And so I'm gonna beat whatever cross I face. Any tomb I go into is going to be turned into a tunnel where I come out the other side. Jesus rose victoriously. And so I am going to rise victoriously. And there may be difficult days. There may be dark nights. But the truth is, is that those difficulties now act as a way of burning away all my other false hopes. Think about this for a second. Peter speaks of gold. He says, gold, though tested by fire. Gold is what everyone in the Roman Empire would have hoped in. Gold is how you ate. Gold is how you built your home. Gold is how you acquired, acquired power. Gold is how you acquired influence. Gold is how you knew you had a future. 
And Peter talks about our faith going through difficulty the way that gold goes through the fire, is tested by that fire, and has all of the impurities rise out of it. You see, what difficulty does is it exposes how faulty every other false hope is. Let me ask you tonight, what are you hoping in? What are you really hoping in today? We say we hope in Jesus. That's what we would say with our lips. But 1 Peter 1.13 would say, you need to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't know that we always hope fully. I think that we hope partially. I think that we like hope in Jesus, but we also hope in our jobs. And we hope in Jesus, but we also hope in the next president. And we hope in Jesus, but we also hope in some pastor to say something that no one's ever said before that will maybe open our eyes and get us on the straight and narrow. And we say we hope in Jesus, but we also hope in that future spouse to complete us or that kid that's going to be the center of our whole world and that we're going to worship and adore. Or we hope in some other person created in the image of God and not God himself. We hope in jobs and financial levels and we hope in fighting off the aging process using anti-regal cream and crazy face masks and rolling our faces with stones. We hope in kale and blueberries and antioxidants. We hope in our hairdressers. We hope in the next style or the next fad. We hope in all of these other things. But you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about the reality that most of those things that we're hoping in are actually things that are dead. No, come with me on this for a second. Maybe not your hairdresser. Maybe they're alive. Okay, but <laughs> we hope in money, which are called dead presidents. We hope in homes built with wood that's just a bunch of dead trees. We hope in clothes, it's just dead cotton. We hope in food, which is dead plants, dead animals. We hope in other religions, dead prophets, dead people, dead Buddhas, dead Muhammads, dead Joseph Smiths. You know the beauty about hoping in Jesus? He is a risen savior. He is a living God. He is alive. You can go to Israel you can search far and wide, you will not find his bones. We have a living God. It means we have a living hope. Let me ask you this. What are you hoping will save you from the spiritual disease of sin? I want to take you back to 2020 when COVID broke out. And everybody was just hoping that somebody would come up to, with a solution to the, to the problem, whether it was a vaccine or a pill or something. And I don't know where you are on all of that, but it doesn't, I don't know that we ever figured it out. You remember that just feeling of like, what are we going to do to solve this problem, to, to get things back right in the world? I want for you to know that one day you're going to stand before God and you're going to realize the reality of your sin problem and your separation from a holy God who created you but that you rebelled against. And what are you hoping is going to be enough for him to let you in in the end? I was listening to a stand-up comic preparing for this message, and he was talking about the way that he hopes that God isn't real. I thought it was such an interesting thing to say. He went on to say, he goes, you know, I, I spent my whole life as an atheist, and I do my whole stand-up bit, and I make all of you guys laugh with all of these jokes about Christianity and how silly and crazy and cuckoo it is. And, but then I started thinking to myself, like, oh, snap, what if it's actually true? I really hope that it's not because it's going to be an awkward conversation, especially for me when I get there and see the big man upstairs, you know. And he goes on and he talks about the way he's like, I just can't imagine that day that, you know, I die. However, it's going to be. I'm sure it's going to be when I'm old and lying in my bed and, you know, I'm going to have all these adoring fans and I'm going to die. And then I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to open them. And I'm like, oh, snap. He's actually streets of gold, beard, whole thing. He's there. Okay, yeah, I, I, I'm going. I know, I know which direction I'm supposed to go. And I thought at first, you know, that's kind of funny. And then I thought, that is so unbelievably heartbreaking. 
And I can't help but think that that, that, that standing at that intersection is how many people live. They're, they're gonna stand there someday and they're gonna go, I hope he lets me in. I hope that I've done enough. I hope that I've come to church enough or sang enough songs or given enough money or prayed enough prayers or been good enough or tried my hardest or been a good parent or I, I hope. Tonight, what did you wanna know? What did you wanna know that you know that you know like as sure as Jesus re- resurrected from the grave and as sure as he's keeping your inheritance in heaven for you, what did you wanna know that he's gone to prepare a place for you, a place with your nameplate on it, a place that is tailor-made for you, that is going to, to be for you? What did you want to know? The good news of the gospel is that we can know. First Peter chapter one, verse 12 says this, the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There is a good news. And that good news of hope is that there is a gospel. And that gospel is that there is a God who loves you more than you could fathom. And he is full of mercy and grace. He is good and wants good for you. He created this world for your enjoyment, but there is this massive problem and it's called sin. It's called rebellion. And every single living person has committed it. You have sinned against God. You have chosen your way over his way. You have not acknowledged him. You have actively rebelled against him. You have not kept his commands. You have failed to live up to his expectation of holiness. All of us have done it and you know you have. You feel it in your soul. There's this aching longing for something to fix what's broken on the inside. And there's only one solution to that problem. His name is Jesus. And he came to live the life that you could never live and to die the death that you deserve to die and to rise again to become your living hope. And there's this, there's this offer and that if you will surrender your life and you will make him king, you will crown him Lord. You will turn from your sin. You will believe on his cross and resurrection that he will grant you newness of life and a living hope. And what Peter says is so incredible about it is he says that these are the things that angels long to look into. I could preach the gospel for you in a million different ways, show you all of the different elements of it because it's so diverse and beautiful and complex and deep and wide and expansive. And Peter says that it's so beautiful that angels are actually trying to understand it. How could a God as big as he is and as glorious as he is and as powerful as he is love people like us? How could God full of goodness create a world of perfection and beauty and glory and splendor? And how could people, little people steal his glory, spit in his face, do life their own way, sin against him? And how could a God decide to send his one and only son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, to perform miracles, to preach the gospel, to invite sinners to come and sit at his table and then to die? horrifically, brutally, barbarically die, be bled to death on a cross, then how could he rise? Glorious rise three days later, defying odds. When hope had been lost, how could he rise and offer salvation to broken, sinful people? Angels are in heaven going, help me understand. So funny, people ask me as pastor questions all the time about angels and they want to study angels and do angelology and know about angels and look into angels well angels are wanting to look into you they're wanting to look into how a god like him could love people like us and that offer a free offer of the gospel is available for each and every one of you tonight i don't know many people who have lived as resiliently throughout history as Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich was a theologian, pastor, spy, and martyr in Nazi Germany during World War II. And the world was falling, around, falling apart around Dietrich, but he kept walking with Jesus all the way to the bitter end. By late 1942, the underground seminary that Bonhoeffer had started in Finkelwald had been broken up by the Gestapo. And Bonhoeffer had been arrested in suspicion of participation in the plot to assassinate Hitler. On February 7th, he was transported to Buckenwald and then on April 6th with several others to another facility. Then on April 8th, it was a Sunday. 
Bonhoeffer led a worship service for the prisoners speaking on the scriptures for that day. Through his stripes, we are healed, Isaiah 53, five. And then this one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First Peter chapter one, verse three. He had hardly finished his last prayer when the door opened and two evil men wearing civilian clothes came in and said, prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us. Those words come with us for all prisoners had come to mean only one thing, the scaffold. They bade Bonhoeffer goodbye. He pulled his friend Best aside and said, this is the end, but for me, only the beginning of life. Later the next day, April 9th, 1945, Dietrich was taken to the scaffolds in a town called Flossenburg where he was hanged. The camp doctor watched through a half door and he said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer before taking off his prison garb, he kneeled on the floor, prayed fervently to his God. And I was deeply moved by the way that this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the steps of the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in a few seconds. The doctor goes on to say, in the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God, so full of hope. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a living hope. Do you? You will die someday. What will happen next? Let's pray. There is real life, eternal life, hope-filled life that is available to you today. You can be born again. There's no question about whether or not you will die. The only question is whether or not you will truly live. If you want this living hope today, I just invite you to pray this in quietness of your heart where you are. Say, Jesus, I'm done hoping in myself. Tonight, I put all my hopes in you. I surrender my sin. I receive your hope. I believe in your resurrection. I want newness of life. I crown you king. Be my living hope. If you prayed that prayer, it is the most important decision you've ever made in your entire life. God's word tells us that his spirit comes to live inside of you and he gives you that living hope. And I just wanna mark the most powerful decision that you've ever made with you right now here today. If you just prayed that prayer, on the count of three, would you lift your hand in the air? One, two, three. Yeah, come on, praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Can we celebrate that people have received the living hope of God tonight?